everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast with me and David, and today we're going to be doing one of my favorite films of all times, my second favorite horror film of all time, Toby Hooper's Poltergeist from 1982, came out the same month as The Thing, Blade Runner, and E.T., and David, what do you think of Poltergeist? Well, John, I know this is one of your favorites, so I'm actually just going to pass it over to you. <laughs> you can give me your thoughts first right. for, for, for a change in the podcast, because you're always giving me the stage first, so I'll, um, I think you should do this one. I don't like to leave you in the background for too long and let me just ramble on, because a movie like this, I could talk forever. This is one I saw at a very young age. I was in second grade, seven years old. My mom loved this movie, and she wanted to show it to me. The problem is, it scared the hell out of me. So <laughs> It's one of only two movies, this and The Ring, that actually just petrified me from a really young age i always was afraid to go in my closet after i wasn't scared of the clown but i was always scared of like getting sucked into my closet and then going out of the tv because the tv at like that tv that goes on the floor that's the first time i ever watched this movie was on a tv like that so i was very afraid of this movie from a young age yeah i would say you're not the only one was terrified of this movie um (laughs) i was the same i probably watched this far too young as I think I've mentioned before in previous podcasts, like I have older brothers, so me and my younger brother were kind of like not subjective, but kind of like we're able to kind of see a lot of these movies that we probably weren't or shouldn't have been watching, you know, because of our older brothers. Well, I believe them in anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so when a lot of these movies were coming on television in the eighties, Older Older Case was one of them, and I remember we had it on VHS, and I can't say I can remember the first time I watched it. But all it says is that it gave me nightmares, weeks, months, I don't know. Then it was kind of, the correlation was made between my parents and myself that I was watching Poltergeist and they actually taped over the VHS and when I stopped watching it, I stopped having nightmares. Oh, that, that makes sense then, actually. Maybe you did have a Poltergeist actually on that tape. Your nightmares coincided with the VHS. <laughs> Maybe. Coming out of the TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were just going right so in it was your a mind. Fight. Sorry, John, go ahead. I said they were just going right in your mind, not in the rest of the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, so I vaguely remember them saying they were going to tape over it, me screaming that through, um, because I loved the movie, but I was looking very young at the time. And um, so I never really seen the movie properly again, the original, for many, many years. But it was always one that was in the back of my mind that I want to see again. And yeah, this movie is undoubtedly a classic. That's exactly what happened to me. I saw it that one time, scared the hell out of me, and I didn't see it again for a very long time. Probably until I was like 14 or 15 years old, and then I just appreciated it more. Because I always wanted to see it again, because even, like it's yeah. like that thing like where you want to feel it again, but it's like you got to work up the gut for it. And uh, it wasn't until I was older and I really wasn't scared of horror movies, and I'm like, I've let this movie haunt me for too long, and then I just learned to just love it, just enjoy it, and that's when I go back to it now. That's what it is. I just appreciate the film, and I get those nostalgic feelings for it now. Definitely, and I, I was the same, actually. I was not over that when I watched it again. I think I was maybe in the early 20s again when I watched it, you know, but it was always one of those ones in the back of my mind that I would wanted to watch again. Um, then revisit it, as I say, for many years. I think it's probably because when I started watching the VHSs, no crack in the VHSs before DVD came along, I'd never seen it. You know, I suppose I've maybe seen it in the shops. I probably might have bought it before then and watched it when I was a teenager, but I didn't. And then eventually, I think it was in my, in my early 20s, I thought, oh, I want to watch, I want to see it again. I haven't seen it in many years. So I only remember the pieces of it. And then I bought it on DVD and it was around the 25th anniversary. Yeah, it's been in my collection ever since. So now I've upgraded the Blu-ray and I have the trilogy on Blu-ray. 
Yeah, the sequels, uh, they don't live up to what the original one was. I actually don't even own them on Blu-ray. I haven't seen them in many years, but I still like them. <laughs> yeah, I actually like Poltergeist 2. And, you know, I know I'm in the minority here. I actually like Poltergeist 3. And uh, I think 2 is a decent sequel. It's not perfect. It has its problems. I actually think that the villain in Poltergeist 2, the Reverend Henry Kane, Oh my god. It's the scariest villain out of the three movies. You know, I think him alone was scarier than the whole of the first movie. Oh no, I 100% agree with you. He himself is petrifying, and I feel bad for the poor man because uh, that's his look. That's just what the man looked like. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what he sounded man, he, like. <laughs> he was dying of stomach cancer when yep. he was making Port Against Three. And that's probably why it's so scary looking because he's so skeletal and just. He just doesn't look well, and obviously, you know, he's dying. So, but then his character then carries over to the third movie. And the thing about the third movie for me is, I only watched the second and third movie when I got the Blu-ray trilogy. I only had the first movie on DVD. Actually, sorry, I'm an liar. I had the, the second movie on DVD as well. But then when I got the trilogy on Blu-ray, the third one was on there. So I was like, I got it for a deal or whatever. So I decided just to get the trilogy rather than just buy the first and second one. And the funny thing was is that we did have. Uh, the third one on original VHS when I was a um, early teenager, and and I'd seen that one a load of times, and that even that one scared me, you know, when I was a young teenager. So I'd remembered stuff about that movie, and you could say that maybe there's a lot of nostalgia with the third movie, which is why I don't really hard in on it. I mean, I don't find it as bad as people say. You know, it's funny is I actually saw the third one before I saw the second one and I saw it on VHS, rented it from Blockbuster, and I liked it. I thought it was good, actually, the first time I saw it. I enjoyed the mirror aspects of it. I don't know why, in the big building. I was yeah. kind of into it when I was young, and then I saw the second one, and that one scared me, too, but nothing like how I was scared of the first one, but I was scared of him. He just scared the hell out of me. But then at the third one, when I went back to it and reading interviews about the director, like having to finish filming after, what's her name, Patty O'Rourke died? Uh, Heather O'Rourke. Heather O'Rourke. After she tragically died while they were making the third one, um, and like they didn't want to finish it, but they were forced to. Yeah. It kind of it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth every time I rewatch it, knowing that like she's not even really there when they finish the movie. And it, it, I don't know. It's just, if I can get it out of my head, I think I would enjoy it a little bit more now, but I, for some reason I can't separate that if that makes sense. Yeah. I understand. And I think that that kind of dark cloud hangs over that movie. And maybe there's a wee bit of morbid fascination with the movie because of what happened to Heather O'Rourke. When I watched the Blu-ray, I think it was about two years ago. Um, I got the Blu-ray box set. So we seen the third one again, two years ago after about, 25 years or whatever maybe I, I started looking on YouTube about you know the making of it and stuff like that because the Blu-rays are basically bare bones and um, you're right the, the director of the, of the third film did say that because she passed away it was I think he had said that he didn't want to finish the movie or whatever or the studio didn't I can't remember who it was but they didn't even really promote it or anything like that either so I think the film suffered because of that but at the same time, it didn't exactly, the, the, the critics didn't make it either um, when they did watch it. So I don't know if there was a backlash because she passed away. I, I honestly don't know. I, I don't I actually think it's a bad movie. I, I genuinely don't. And the whole, I thought they, that how they'd done the special facts with the mirrors and stuff like that was really well done. And I think it still holds up. And it's a creepy, a creepy uh, thought, you know, of, of uh, spirit behind a mirror. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I like the way they've done all that in the third movie. You know, when you see things move in the mirror. Before the person did, 
Yeah. Or, or there was something in the mirror behind, you know, and they don't see it, but you do. I, I really like all that aspect of the third movie. No, that's actually what I really like about the third one. That's always what I remember about it. I always thought, you know, that was a really fascinating concept. You know, I get it. it we're taking the haunted house concept, and now, okay, what are we going to haunt now? Oh, haunt an entire building. So that, you know, and you can't escape it. Anything that reflects, it's in there. It's in the core of the building. I actually really thought it was a cool idea. And yeah. maybe if I can revisit, because it's been probably like seven years since I last revisited it. It's been a long time. So maybe I do owe it a rewatch. And it's been enough time for me to get that taste out of my mouth about it. Because until I saw that interview, I really, I wouldn't have really thought about it. I thought it was actually done beforehand. So then once that, that interview kind of ruined it for me, <laughs> which actually I yeah. think that should lead us into, uh, it's not even just the third film, but the whole franchise has a like a considered a curse over the entire film franchise with the amount mm-hmm. of people that have uh, passed away while they were making it, including from the original film. The one sister, she uh, tragically died. She was murdered, yeah. actually, in that same year, 1982. Yeah, she was murdered by her boyfriend. Um, she is actually um, the sister of... Yeah, she comes from a famous family. I'm going to get... Let me get a real name right now. She is her name's Dominic Dunn, is it? Oh, he's called is it Griffin. So Dominique Dunn and her, she comes from the Dunn family. Her parents are Dominique Dunn also, and Ellen Griffin Dunn. Relatives, her brother is Griffin Dunn. It's the Griffin Dunn from After Hours. That's because they're the same person. They're both dead. I couldn't believe that. Right, okay. Well, he's a, he's a Magamore for Love, and he's the guy that gets attacked by the wolf. Yes. Uh, I'm spoiled, obviously, they both do, but he's the one that dies, and then comes back as the corpse. Wow, I didn't even put that together when I read that. I knew that she came from a, uh, a, a famous family, but I didn't realize this Griffin Dunn was her brother. That's crazy. Yeah, I'd see now, you know, I was watching her when I was watching the movie the other night. I was looking at her, and you can actually see there's a resemblance there. Like in the eyes, now that I'm thinking about it? Yeah, and the, and the uh-huh. thick eyebrows. They have the, those the, thick... The, the dark hair as well, yeah. And the people written them out as well. You, you can tell they're brother and sister, I think. Yep. Which brings me to a point, I mean, getting off a little bit topic, but she goes outside and you got the construction workers, like, whistling at her and everything like that. I'm thinking, you know, if that was my daughter, and what is she, like, 16? I mean, in real life, she's like 23, but she's like 16 in the movie. Yeah. I would fucking kill him. (laughs) Yeah, and that's something that struck me as well, because there's a lot of talk about this movie being very kind of early 1980s Americana suburban American household and the the mother actually sees but sees the workman doing that out the window. She shakes okay, the head. daughter <laughs> rightfully, you know, goes like that to them and they all laugh. But the mum's in the pits and watchness and she's laughing too. Yeah. You know, and I just thought to myself, that wouldn't fly now, you know? No. No, but they I guess they're kind of portraying this family as more of like uh democratic like kind of very like hippie generation because we also see them rolling a joint in banded one so they're a little bit more laid back yeah. because i also would have been a little bit frustrated when the guy's trying the sauce through the window you know i'm like you know that's my food and you're eating right out of the- <laughs> yeah the guy eating the food through the window yeah and i found that a wee bit goofy but that's one thing that struck me about watching this movie again was the amount of humor was in it that i never realized before Oh, yeah, especially early in the movie, like the guy riding the bike and freaking with the beer and he's spilling it, crumbing in the house and it's shooting everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and, and one, one bit that I actually liked was when the um, par, say, what do you call them, the paranormal? Paranormal psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, par psychiatrist. They come into the house 
and um, something happens up in the bedroom, and the woman says, that's it, we're going to get your daughter. And they says, you can't go up there, you can't go into that closet. And she says, you just watch me. And Nixon is, the other guy comes running down the stairs, nearly crying, and she's like, well, what happened? And he's like, something bit me. And when he pulls his T-shirt up, there's this big bait on the side of him, and she, she looks at it, and then she says, we're sleeping down here tonight. Yeah. Actually, there's so many bits with them that's really funny. Like, when they're walking up the stairs and the one guy is telling him, he's like, you know, I had a Matchbox car move across the floor. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's not to the naked eye, you don't see it, but I had it on time lapse camera for seven hours. And Craig T. Nelson's taking the keys out. He, like, rolls his eye at the guy, like, wait till you fucking see what's behind this door. And he unlocks it and yeah. everything's flying around. <laughs> he's just like, uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As if, as if he's impressing them. Yeah. You know, he's getting kind of like, you, may, you wouldn't have seen it, but we had on time lapse seven hours and he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Nobody has seen this. Yeah, you guys have no idea what you're really in store for right now. There's no, because in the next scene, it's just her shaking because she can't believe what they just saw. Yeah, and then and that's the next scene where she's telling them about different types of ghosts, poltergeist, things like that, hauntings, and then you see the the he pot move across the table. But the both of them, you see the both of them looking under the table. Yeah, like you know, these guys are supposed to believe in this stuff, but yeah. there's so much activity going on. There's so much happening that they they can't believe it. You know? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Like that's like like they're like in shock, and the family though has been dealing with this for a few days. That they've already accepted that this is there. Like I actually like that aspect of the movie. They don't spend too much time of trying to convince people to believe this. They like they have like one scene almost of each person trying to like dedicate it to it. Like when Craig T. Nelson comes home, and you know Heather O'Rourke slides across the floor. Like he's shocked, but like you know, yeah. they move up off that pretty quick to where they're accepting what's going on. Yeah, and did you notice like the really weird edit? What edit? Like the, uh, the cuts at the end of that scene where she's explaining to Craig T. Nelson about you know, well, showing him you know, Heather O'Rourke flying across the floor and she's wearing a crash helmet, which is your actually it's the American football helmet, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it's a Los Angeles Rams helmet. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because that's the match that they're watching for start, isn't it? That's the game they're watching. Yeah, I th- I I always I think they're watching a college football game. If I'm I could be wrong. I don't know if they're watching a Rams game. I think they're watching right. a USC game. I could be wrong. Either way, it's American football. I just don't remember what game. <laughs> but there's this weird edit just after that scene, and like it popped up on the internet a few years ago. They like what this weird edit in Poltergeist, and it turns out what it actually is is that she says to Stephen the character. You know, I've got this weird feeling. You have know, weird feeling in your stomach. She says something along those lines, and then it cuts to the next scene. Pulls you, and all of a sudden it's like there's no air except that you can breathe, and and you're getting pulled along. And maybe but the actual line in the movie was he says, "I like when you part of Domino's." Like you when you I think it's Domino's pizza. He's supposed to say because I've seen this online. Oh, and obviously, Pizza yeah. Hut is in the movie, so they. Oh. Maybe it's Pizza Hut, or is it Domino's Pizza, or Pizza Hut? Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously they said that we can't put that in the movie, so they had to cut it out. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, because, yeah, she does, that's it, they just cut right there, like, you get this weird feeling like in the pit of your stomach, and you're right, they do cut. And, okay. I actually haven't seen that edit, so I'm gonna have to look that up. And here, yeah, see what you're saying there as well about Dominique Dunn and her age. The, did you notice that when the... Um, what do you call it? The paranormal investigators, and they ask the ages of the children and everybody in the house. He says, My wife's 31, I mean 32, and then he says, I'm a daughter's 16. 
Yeah. So that means that they had her young. And that's just leaning more, I think, into the character things about, like, you know, these people are young parents. Because they seem like these cool, laid-back parents, like Craig T. Nelson. Like, they just seem like they're very, they don't, especially in 1982, that in here in America, that's the beginning of Reagan's presidency. So maybe they're trying mm-hmm. to, like, push back against that. Especially since they start the movie with the uh, Star-Spangled Banner and, you know, then the TV cutting off. So he's reading a book about Reagan? Yeah. Yes, he is. Because Reagan was the governor of California before he became the president of the United States. So they're in California. So I guess they're all leading into like what America was becoming of that time, which was very much a capitalism society, but just becoming more and more like that at that time. Yeah. So that's little aspects but they, but of the But then background. when I was doing my internet research, whether or not to put this in in retrospect, in the, the novelization for Poltergeist, apparently Dominique Dunn is his daughter from a previous relationship. Oh, really? So maybe that explains why she's so much older than the other two. That would explain a little bit more why the mother is a little bit more, like, colder towards her and why she would laugh at the uh, construction workers making jokes at her, you know, while she walks by. It's because it's not her daughter and maybe she's like, hey, she's got to learn for herself how to handle these guys. I've had step-parents. I can see that. They don't interfere as much. Yeah, it could could be. That's, That's exactly what it could be. Okay, actually, that makes a little bit more sense in the story, giving it a broader picture. I could see that. That makes a little... Because the other two are a lot younger than her. Yeah, and they mentioned in the film that um, it's a Caroline's five years old and she was born in the house. Yeah. And then later on, they mentioned, he mentions about his boss, mentions this Stephen about moving the, the graves in 1976. So that was only six years before. She would like to think that she was born in the house and she's five. I mean, they've only been in the house for five years. So it could well be that their relationship is only maybe 10 years old. Yeah, and I could see that Craig T. Nelson could possibly be a little bit older than her. Like, you know, like he could be like in his early 40s and like she, we know she's 32. So like, yeah, he could have had a previous relationship, you know, had a marriage that failed. And now this is his second marriage, his second family. Makes sense. It definitely adds up and... That brings us like to like actually to those houses and those neighborhoods because one thing we gotta always talk about when we talk about this movie, Steven Spielberg. And at the exact same time this movie came out a week before E.T. came out. Steven Spielberg is the director of E.T., but he's the executive producer and co-writer of this movie. Amblin Amblin Entertainment was one of the producers along with MGM on this movie as well. So this very much the argument is who directed it, the him or Toby Hooper? Well, I mean, watching this again, and we have touched on Spielberg and how he shoots movies and how movies look in some of the other podcasts we've done, like Close Encounters and Jaws and Raiders. And um, I don't know, I just think Spielberg directed this. I mean, when I was doing research for this, because look, this is one of the few movies that I know, would know an awful lot about because there's not much material out there. Although I've really been looking for it, but I mean, like, usually maybe you get a supplement on a Blu-ray or a DVD about the making of Poltergeist, and there's, there's not really much out there. No, there's so, really not. Um, as I say, just watching it again, I mean, it's it just, every, Spielberg's got his fingerprints all over this movie, and I just can't see where Toby Hooper's fingerprints are at all whatsoever. Now, I understand he'd be at the likes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I've seen that, and I've seen Seal of Blood, which I, I like a lot as well. I like um, both their movies. Texas Chainsaw, not as much as Salem's that, but just the whole idea of this suburban family being haunted by something, it's just got Spielberg written all over it. It really does, and the thing, the story goes is that 
Steven Spielberg was really impressed with the movie he did a year before this, The Fun House. And it's one year before this, and The Fun House feels nothing like this movie. This feels very much like a Steven Spielberg movie. Now, you could argue that that Steven Spielberg apparently, like, I was doing some reading today when I was at the doctor's, like, reading everyone's, like, different interviews that, like, Spielberg would come in and he had, like, final decision, but, like, Toby Hooper was the guy calling cut and action and, you know, he was there on the day-to-day because Spielberg was also doing E.T., so, like, he couldn't be there every day. When you watch it, it just, you could tell that Steven Spielberg, at the very least, had the final decision on the on the look of this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, when I was actually doing the re- I've done a wee bit of research myself, didn't do any reading, just listened to a few things. And there's a making of as well on YouTube from the time, which is about seven or eight minutes long. It's basically Spielberg for the old seven minutes talking about the movie, and when you actually see shows you behind the scenes of the movie, it's Spielberg giving correction. It's he's speaking to the special effects guys, he's speaking to the actors. Um, you know, there's Toby Hoover's there. You see Toby Hoover a few times, but he, he doesn't even talk to the production crews making the making of at all. Um, and then when you start doing a wee bit more digging, I know that the story was by Spielberg, and he hired a couple of writers to write read the story like he done with E.T. Uh, like he done the certain stand of Boots and Printers and I know that he did want to direct both of them but he wasn't allowed because of his contract with Universal and directing E.T. so you, you could be fair to say that he was looking for a loophole and he found it as long as Toby Hooper was saying uh, action and cut then he's in the director's chair but at the same time I mean when I was doing the research um, Spielberg pretty much done a lot of the hiring of the, of the cast he, he hired Jerry Goldsmith he, he was the one that had the consultation with Goldsmith on how the score should be. Even uh, post-production, Spielberg was the one that was uh, interacting with this past, this past the facts um, crowd. I think it was uh, in, in Industrial Light Magic, who done Star Wars. Yeah. Um, so he he was interacting with them, and he was uh, detailing all that, the how it should look. You know, when I was doing my research, there was somebody who actually was says, like, oh, you know, the DTA investigated this. And Toby Hooper actually, they came in conclusion, Toby Hooper directed the movie, and I tend to believe, believe them. Uh, but then proceeded to just talk about everything that Spielberg done. And I mean, like, I, I've been, like, watching Megan all for years. I mean, you even take Spielberg and Jaws as, a, as, a, as an example. Uh, Spielberg hired the cast nut. He hired John Williams. Do you know what I mean? He, he was there every day with the editor. You know, he helped you know, the editing process. You know, so, we, so I don't understand why a producer was so heavily involved in the creative aspects of this movie because I've never seen a producer being as heavily involved in the creative aspect of a movie. And usually when they do get heavily involved like that, it turns out to be a disaster because they end up bumping heads with the director. I couldn't agree more. Like, that's exactly why is he so involved. And one little aspect that I read, and I looked this up today because I was very curious about who was working on what film. So the editor who always works with Steven Spielberg, who started working with Steven Spielberg in 1977 for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there is only one movie that that editor did not work with Steven Spielberg because he was too busy and he was working on another movie. He was working on Poltergeist, so he couldn't work on E.T., so he had to use a different editor. Seems yeah. a little fishy to me that his editor would be working on Poltergeist at the same time, almost like he was assigned the work there. <laughs> so it was Michael Kahn was working on Poltergeist, was he? Yeah, uh, let me look at this right now. Who E.T.? Carol Linton. Littleton. Littleton. Carol Littleton. So there you go. And I didn't realize that Michael Kahn worked on Poltergeist then. Obviously, he started working with Michael Kahn 
on Cruise Encounters. That was the first movie he worked with him. Yeah. Yeah. So they worked together their entire career except for that one overlap with E.T., which is so weird yeah. that, you know, he was too busy. He had to go work on Poltergeist. So that's another little, like, twist on things where the editor couldn't work on E.T. because they do just feel just so similar to each other, E.T. and Poltergeist. Just the neighborhoods that they're shot in, like, the look of those two films are identical to each other. It's just... It's too much for me, and plus there's those pictures that we've talked about in the past of Steven Spielberg with the kids from both movies. So you just know he was bouncing around between both, you know, sound stages. Yeah, I think so. And as we've as spoken about before, John, in other podcasts, just it's, it's even just the cinematography of the, of the movie. And I understand that you hire cinematographers and all the rest of it, but Spielberg, as I spoke about in one of the, I think it was the Close Encounters podcast, in those early years, I Spielberg used light and shadows um, in his movies. To me, I, you know, it was very unique for him at that particular period in his career. And you see it throughout this whole movie. You, know, you, you see it throughout Close Encounters. There's a, one scene in Jaws where you see it, maybe 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 two, maybe in some of the night shots. Um, you see it all through E.P. And then you see it through all this movie as well. Exactly. He lights his movies a certain way. And I know exactly what shots you're talking about in E.T. And I look forward to those shots. And you also could see one thing that he did in Close Encounters, but he, like, elevated it. That shot when they do first walk in the bedroom and, like, all the stuff's mm-hmm. flying around, like the record player. That's just, like, turning up what he did with all the toys in Close Encounters, but, like, turning yeah. it up to 10. Like, it's the same kind of, like, you know, awe-inspiring scene. Like, that. Just that. that's a Spielberg scene. Yeah. And <laughs> now that you say that, just something that springs the mind, man. One of the very first shots of the movie, um, the guy on the big leaving his house in the cul-de-sac, going right down the hill. Yeah. I mean, is there not a similar shot in E.T. with Elliot's brother when he goes to big for E.T. in Sim- the river? Similar looking bike, too. Danny <laughs> <laughs> aliens in the front of it? Yeah. Just beer. <laughs> he just got beer instead this time. <laughs> That's better. That's better on an alien. <laughs> That scene bothers me just because of the guy running in the house and spilling beer everywhere like that. Like, I'm like, come on, man. Like, how much? He lost most of the beer. <laughs> I don't even know. Like, six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was those kids with the, and that's the thing at the start. You see the kids with the wee remote control cars. They like, hate 80s. Is that? Oh, my God. It really is such of the time. <laughs> it really is. And I, I think that's the charm as well. There is a lot of kind of nostalgia, I think. Oh even though, you know, I, I was I was only one in nineteen eighty three and didn't never grow up in America, but just watching those type of movies through the eighties, as it's called before, you know, a Spielberg movies, movies like the Goonies and Back to the Future and stuff like that. There's a lot of nostalgia I think within um Poltergeist as well for me. Oh yeah, I get so much nostalgia from Poltergeist, and then just honestly, the bedroom, the way the look of it, like that's we—that's the Spielberg touch of like making those rooms look lived in. But look at the posters he puts on the wall, like you know he's got Alien, he's got uh, Star Wars stuff everywhere. Yes. So you can clearly see where the inspiration, and that feels like—I mean, I wasn't born in '82, but like I—that feels like what a kid's room would look like in the '80s. I feel like <laughs> all the stuff that they would like. Yeah, and again, he's he's given a nod to his friend. Yep. Um, George Lucas, I mean, he done that in EP as well. Some of Elliot toys for Star Wars toys. 
Yep, he's just helping him sell. He's just helping old George Lucas sell toys in all of his movies. Yeah, and in the other ET, you sees a guy dressed up as Yoda, a kid dressed up as Yoda. Yeah, ET's like, oh, he recognizes him. He starts to turn around. Like I've seen that guy before, which is funny because in uh, episode two, I think it is, or uh, you actually have ET or whatever the species is in Star Wars, which is funny. It's the Phantom Menace. Yeah, he's <laughs> ET. Yeah, um, it is a family of ETs when they're having like this meeting about. It's like the all the it's princess uh, queen uh, or whatever you call her. She was having a meeting. You see a pod of ETs. Yeah, it's with the political storyline and freaking this, that that just drives me nuts in those movies. <laughs> yeah, that's another yeah. one in your film, Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> I've watched that film in many years, but yeah, it's brutal. Don't go back. Yeah. <laughs> I did it last year. So, I'm not doing it for a while. No, no, listen, I've got to the age now, I've said before in other pods, like, you know, if I'm going to watch a Star Wars movie, I'm going to watch the original trilogy, you know, I've no time to watch the other one, or watch the good one. No, I agree. <laughs> so speaking of what's in this film as well, John, you touched on it earlier, the Poltergeist curse, did you hear or read that the reason people think the reason that there was a curse is because they used real skeletons in the final scenes? Yep, and I mean, is that even true? From well, um, I have actually a documentary series that came out on Shutter a few years ago. I have it on Blu-ray over there. It's uh, Cursed Films, and they did an episode mm-hmm. on that, and they talked about the skeletons. And from what I'm able to find out is, again, just like the directing thing, it's kind of a a mix. Like one person says another thing, and one person says, "No, absolutely, we would never do that." But then somebody else was like, "Well, it's actually cheaper to use real skeletons, so it has been done before, and that's exactly what they did on Poltergeist." is they use real skeletons, but it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't seen yeah. as like a, like, you know, it's just seen as like something that they just did. And like, it, they do say though that, that is part of the reason. And then also like the subject matter of digging on sacred burial grounds, you know, it's kind of taboo on its own. So that's another reason why they think the whole set was cursed and why all these people like started to die off. But I mean, it just seems a little bit rant. Yeah. It's tragic uh, for all three deaths that are associated, but you know, it feels more coincidental, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if I believe in all that kind of cursed movies. And when you weigh up the amount of people that actually worked on the movie, yeah, uh, like you say, it's tragic. It's but it's. Um, I'm sure there's maybe hundreds of people worked on that movie, and nothing happened to them. I mean, there was a boy, the youngest dead in the movie. He's still alive. Nothing happened to him, and it's probably just life, you know. Yeah, it's tragic what happened to Heather O'Rourke, but I mean, like, things like, and even in the 80s, like, uh, you ever seen The Land Before Time, the young girl in that movie, like, she was murdered by her father, like, you know, things like that, they're terrible, but it just, unfortunately, I think it's more noteworthy with Poltergeist because the people who have died were stars of the movie, like, they were in front of the camera, so, like, we saw them so we could put a face to the death. Yeah, well, I think that with Poltergeist, it's the whole subject matter, you know, the whole subject matter of the movie about you know, contacting the dead and spirits haunting people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, as I said, like the third movie earlier on, it gives us kind of more of a fascination. But the thing is about Heather O'Rourke, it means she lived for another seven years, or what was it, six years after the original theater case. So it's that like, you, you know what I mean? She died right after the first one, you know? So she, she lived for a few years after that. Um, the girl you're talking about from The Land Before Time, that's a girl, girl called Judith Farsi. She was actually in Jaws 4. That's a, that's a, it was a year after Jaws 4 came out um, that she was murdered by her, her dad. It's such a, that's a tragic story, too. 
of just I don't know if you ever read it, but like abuse of yeah. like yeah, it's just terrible. Yeah, I did. I've, I've actually read that story. It's actually heartbreaking because being a big fan, a Jaws fan. I mean, I'm a fan of the whole franchise, so I actually loved the fourth movie. Um, and I was one of them ones where the internet came along, and you could win internet movie database was in its infancy, and you could go in look find out where the actors were die, you know what I mean? And I remember clicking on her and couldn't believe it when I see the end of death, you know, nine thing it was nineteen eighty eight, it was the year after Jaws fourth night. And then it was even more disturbing when I read what happened to her. It wasn't just you know, when it had her work, as sad as that is, it was a medical condition that like the doctors should have caught it earlier. Yeah. You know, when she should still be alive. You know, the doctors should have actually caught on to that. But when you find out a, a a child is actually being physically and mentally abused by her own father and then murders her and her mom. It's very disturbing. It is. It's just absolutely awful. Like, yeah, like you said, like what happened to Heather O'Rourke is a tragedy because she was so young, but it was brought on by a just a misdiagnosed medical condition. You know, it could have happened to anyone. Yeah, and they, they thought it was Crohn's and they were actually um, medicating her for Crohn's and that's why in the third film you see she's got puffing cheeks yeah um that was the side effects that the medication that they're giving her for crohn's and she didn't even have crohn's nope it was a blocked intestine yeah it was a, just an intestinal block but they just if they would have just cleared that it, she would have been fine that's just stuff you could never prepare for <laughs> yeah it's horrible in this movie i mean as far as going back to this it's hard to transition from death to a movie about death but you know i actually this movie was rated pg for the dark subject matter like we've talked about indiana jones in the past and other movies that came out but this was another big one that you could just see as a kid and there mm-hmm. is some scary imagery in this movie including the guy peeling his face off in one scene can you imagine seeing that in theaters as a kid <laughs> yeah that was that was very disturbing and when you think about it, but there's not one person dies in this movie. Nope. You know, nobody's really actually physically harmed, are there? I mean, I know that Joe Beth Williams at the end, she gets thrown up a wee bit. I mean, the kids aren't really physically harmed. I know they're maybe sucked into the class a few times. Oh, yes, the, the, the son, Robbie, is that what you call him? Robbie. Oh, he near gets hit by a tree. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, he gets away, though. He's all good. He gets out of the tree, and they just... That was another thing that's just so much of the time, is the next day when they're sending him off. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the the dog, like, they just let him walk over to the taxi cab, and the moms doesn't... They don't even say goodbye. He's just like, Robbie, uh, call me. I'm like, you know, like, kiss him goodbye or something? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Does he... Does, does he he's gonna get a taxi? Yeah, he just gets in the back of the taxi, and the dog gets in the car, and I'm like, I, I just feel like that's not how somebody would send their kids to their grandparents' house. I think they would drive them yeah. themselves, but maybe they can't yeah, leave I, the house? I don't know. <laughs> I'm surprised he even got them a taxi. You yeah. know, if it was the 80s, I mean... I think I would have been uh, told to walk the McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like my parents would have just dropped me off there or something. I, I It seems like it's close enough that, like, you could either drive them. I don't think you even get a taxi. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember that night. I, and that's one thing about this movie as well is, that, is um, the sound design. I love the sound design of this movie. The sounds in it. And the score and one of my favorite scenes in the, in the movie, it probably is my favorite scene in the movie, is the night scene 
where the um, car, I can't even get this word right. What do you call them? <laughs> what do you call them, Ghostbusters? <laughs> oh, the paranormal, like either either paranormal investigators or paranormal psychiatrists. Paranormal investigators. That's yeah. easier for me to say. Yeah. So it's the scene where the, the female paranormal investigator sits down and has the conversation with Joe Beth Williams and the son. And oh. the way they're just whispering, but it's actually very, when you listen, because they're so quiet. See, when you actually listen to what she's saying, it's actually, it gives a lot of kind of perspective of the movie um, about death and about what they're actually dealing with. And that has to be one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And we were talking earlier there about Spielberg and about uh, Spielberg having his fingerprints o- over this movie. That's one thing I noticed about Spielberg that he, he always nearly puts in all his movies is a quiet night scene. You ever noticed that? I agree, and he also. I I was gonna say even with the sound effects, I think that's a call from him too because like they have like an almost magical feeling to them, like the way the sound yeah. effects, like even like when the TV, like it has like almost like something like you would hear in um, it's just like a sting, like almost like in Batman eighty nine, like 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 a like a whistle or something like blowing like really quick, like it's so underneath the score. It, it's very magical, but yeah, you're right. He does always have those like quiet night scenes in a lot of his movies. He must love like those night scenes where, pe- where just a couple people are awake. Like you know, you gotta yeah. whisper. I just yeah, that is also one of my favorite scenes in the movie as well. Yeah, and, and it's almost like I call it the car before the storm mm-hmm. because there's a few of them that spring to mind, like Jaws in the cabin, right, with the three guys. You've got this one in older days, even though we didn't direct it, apparently. <laughs> it's just before um, the, the spirits come down the stairs and stuff and kind of like try and scare them out of the place, I think. Um, then Saving Private Ryan as well. He goes into Saving oh. Saving Private Ryan. They have this quiet night scene. And most of the time they're eating. You know, they're maybe eating. Yeah. They do have he do, well he always has a lot of I think we talked about this in one of our other reviews about having his actors always doing something like they're always like using their hands like there's a there's a breakfast scene in this movie which is a really good scene by the way but like they're everyone's moving around the room going in and out of the house yeah. he always has his, that's the creating that lived in world like in this movie yeah this is a more of a tight knit family like there's no divorce they're actually very close but like it still feels like a Spielberg family where everyone has their part they feel like real genuine people this feels like a real yeah. like the house in general is just designed perfectly it feels like a real house yeah and as you were saying about there about them being a very close knit family um very strong family as well which which is brilliant mm-hmm. um i actually think that Joe Beth Williams performance in this is outstanding and to be honest with you, they're all absolutely brilliant in the movie. But I was watching the game the other night. I just thought their acting was very, very good. Oh, yeah. No, everyone, even the child actors, everybody is great. And I, I feel like, I mean, Toby Hooper, again, I'm thinking of his movies, but I don't, I don't, I don't think a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Funhouse, or anything that came before this is like anyone having great acting performances in it. I really do feel mm-hmm. like Toby Hooper, like, was just honored to get to work in the studio system and work with Spielberg that, like, he kind of let Spielberg take the lead. Like you said, he cast everyone, and everyone gives great performances. So you know that he liked what he saw from these actors. And especially the children, because that's one thing that Spielberg gets oh, from yeah. child actors. He gets really good performances. I mean, you've seen, I've seen child actors work under Spielberg, and it's the best you've ever seen them. You see them in something else. Or not. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's the same with the kids in this movie as well. Oh, yeah, all the kids do a great job. And getting Heather O'Rourke, I mean, she does, she's phenomenal in this movie, you know, for her little mm-hmm. role that she has, but for how young she is, you know, mm-hmm. she's all over the film. 
and then she just does a great job. And there's just so many great classic scenes in this movie. But one scene that I always think of is the first thing that comes to my mind. And it's really just, I don't know how they did it, but watching that hallway go from short to long when she could just run yeah. down it towards the light. I love that shot. I wait for it every time I watch the movie. It's a simple thing, it seems like, but I just absolutely love that shot. Yeah, it's like a dolly uh, zoom in reverse, I think, isn't it? It must be like, I think it's very similar to something that he did in Jaws, like very much like, you know, back the camera up while zooming in. But I, yeah, I, it feels yeah, like this. Like opposite. If I, if I can remember this correctly, Jaws is kind of like pushing the camera in while zooming out. Yeah. And, and this, I maybe feel, I could be wrong, but somebody can tell me, but this piece is up by pulling the camera back while zooming in. It feels like that because you got to, you know, in Jaws, he's still, and you got to stay on him while in this, she's running. So you got to stay with her while yeah. pulling back, I assume is what that effect is. But I don't know. I always just love that shot. Yeah, it makes a hallway just feel twice as long, man. She's never going to make that, that door. Yeah, <laughs> I love that end sequence. I have a lot of questions about that end sequence, though. Like, they're moving that day, but yet the beds are still in the house. She's going to take a bath. I'm just very... It feels like they're yeah. still living and there. the kids go to bed? Yeah, they're going to bed. I'm like, but they're moving? I'm like, I don't really understand that. <laughs> you see, I can understand from a point of view of, like, because I moved two years ago. <laughs> and, like, you're packing for weeks, you know, preparing things. And I have, you have to have everything packed up the night before, especially because it's a long old day. You wake up early the next day and you hope you can kind of, uh, everything runs smoothly the next day and you can get into the new property. The thing is, though, John, is that she says to her daughter, make sure you're back at a certain time because we're all going to a hotel and your dad wants you to be here. Yeah. So why did the kids go to bed? Yeah, what time is that? Like, I mean, I guess, like, it could be in, like, the winter or something and, like, the, the sun is setting early and I get that, but what are they, they're going yeah. in their bedroom that looks like to go to sleep, like, at seven or eight at night she's taking a bath and what time is everyone coming else coming home because she shows up the, the other daughter as the house is disappearing that crossed my mind too i i, I when she said about the daughter make sure you're back because we're going to the hotel and then uh, you're right it's like they're settling down and then i don't understand the kids going to sleep if they're going to the hotel you just go to the hotel a wee bit earlier and they go to bed there yeah, like, you guys know where you get. And I get, listen, I get they did the smart thing. They got out of there the next day. That was their plan. Like, all right, we're just moving. I'm quitting my job. My boss lied to me. You know, we built this on, you know, Indian burial grounds, and that's what's obviously causing all this. This son of a bitch you left the bodies, and you only moved the headstones! <laughs> Man, I would. It just wasn't soon enough. <laughs> and the thing is, see that hotel room as well. And I think it's on the TV earlier in the movie. I'm not to look this up. I I think you're right. I didn't look that up, but I'm pretty sure you are right. There is a nod to The Shining, which makes a lot of sense in the world. I mean, how many other movies have ho hotels like that? And I love the little thing of bringing the TV out. <laughs> yeah, when he brings the TV out at the end. Yeah, I, I'm near certain the door number is the same number. Of the room in the shining. 237? I think so. And it also says it on the television as well. The channel. I gotta double check that. And speaking of the television, um, here in America, I don't know if they did this in Ireland as well, but that was actually how the TVs ended every single night. Like, that was it. The networks all went out at the same time, and they played the Star Spangled Banner, and then it would just cut to, like, that, you know, confetti-looking thing on the screen. I don't know if that happened in Ireland also. Yeah, the static? Yeah, it did. Yeah, the TV cut it. And then, obviously, I've been in the north of Ireland, so it's, uh, it's a lot of our channels would be UK channels. Okay. Yeah, so I can vaguely remember, yes, that they would cut off, and then I think they played 
uh, gold sea of the queen. All right, so they basically had the, the exact same aspect, essentially. <laughs> I'm near certain. I can't. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I remember actually you like this one having the Terminator on VHS and it doing it once once that ended. It's that's so funny. I, I I just imagine that people today could not even imagine like that's it. TV's done for the night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it was only a few years ago. I was watching TV, normal TV, terrestrial TV, and adverts were coming on, and my daughter was asking me to fast forward the adverts. <laughs> and I was saying to her, I can't, and she was saying, Why not? We can do it at home. <laughs> I said, No, it's because. It, You've recorded something. This is late, and she's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> they really don't know. They don't know. <laughs> we had to go. <laughs> As I say, you know, uh, be able to tell you know when I was a kid, we only had four TV channels, and a cut off at midnight or cut off at one in the morning. It's crazy, and how fast it went because we're not that old to where that was a thing. But like, just even getting movies and stuff, or being homesick from school, and like. Whatever was on TV, you were watching. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah, you didn't have a choice. Nope, there was nothing else. It's not like I could go, like, if I had a VCR, yeah, I could go watch whatever we have at home. But, like, if I wanted to watch TV, it was live TV, and I'm watching the same stupid commercials over and over again. <laughs> That's why, like what we said in the, the last podcast about having a VHS and being able to record something. And as you were saying, you recorded the Rugrats, whatever it was. Yep. Uh, those episodes, you probably watched the MCM episodes over and over and over again, even though there was probably hands of other episodes out there, but you just didn't have them. Nope, that's what I had. There's a reason why I watched Ace Ventura when Nature Calls about a thousand times, because when I was a kid, I had that VHS. I didn't have Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I only had when Nature Calls, so I've watched that a lot. I'm probably I've probably hold the record I think on this planet for the most amount of times that somebody's watched Speed Two Cruise Control because I had the VHS. <laughs> I had the VHS. Get, get records, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm pretty sure the record probably you know before they know what I've watched is probably like twice because who wants to watch that one? <laughs> but I've probably yeah, seen it. You know, 100... I don't even think I've seen that one. Uh, no, I haven't watched it in years, but it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, so yeah. And that's exactly uh, the reason why I, I watched Portuguese 3. Uh, a hell of a lot of times uh, when I was younger, um, I never got to see the first one that was in the 20s again. Yeah, it's what you're at the mercy of, like, what your family has. <laughs> so yep. if they have, like, I, I told, I think I've told the story on the show before, but I don't know if I've told you, but I asked for Titanic on VHS, and I got Speed 2 Cruise Control. That's why I watched Speed 2 Cruise Control <laughs> so much. My mom, like, saw Boat and thought that I must like Boats, and that's why I got Speed 2 Cruise <laughs> Control. <laughs> that's worse than me getting the Sago remake. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up there. They're very similar. <laughs> I th- actually, I think I remember you mentioning that. I think it was when Matt was on the show um, when you were doing the the, the, Let's the Talk Sunday f- show. You yeah, did. Let's Talk Physical Media. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember you talking about that. I was sitting laughing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a gift. 
Like <laughs> the Simpsons when Homer's yeah, yeah, that's right. Just my look, another knowledge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we talked a lot about the actors in this movie. But what do you think of Craig T. Nelson in the lead of this movie? I think he does a good job. Yeah, I think he's very good in the film. Like I said earlier, I think all the actors are really good in this movie. Um, and I actually like the fact just watching it again. It is. It seems more like Joe Beth Williams' movie than anybody else's. It does. He kind of takes a wee bit of a back seat for her. And I, and I just think that she, she's very good and she's like the driving force of, of the movie. She's the heart of the movie. She's the driving force because once Carlon Aiken, you know, he's kind of a, a bit of a shell for the rest of the movie, you know, because he's walking about in the days and he's just kind of like a, a broken man because he doesn't know how to get his daughter back. He can't go to work or anything like that. Jesus, Steve, you look like shit. Aren't you feeling any better? Oh, I'm still weak, Mr. Teague, you know. The only dodgy bit of acting in the movie is for me, is when what do you call the wee shaggy woman? Oh, I mean, what was her name? Carlina. Is that what her name was? My, I, I don't know how we haven't talked about her yet, but my God, <laughs> what a performance! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. She, I, I love her in all three of them, but she, it, it, I just thought that this was really um, cheesy. It just wasn't convincing when she was going to go into the lake to get Carl on, and uh, Joe Beth Williams says. I have to go in, and Tanzina says, well, you've never, you never done this before. And then she says back there, well, they are you. And Tanzina is like, you're right, you go. It yeah. just was dead flat or something. It just was terrible. <laughs> I, I would ask for another take there. But she's right. She's right. She wouldn't recognize her. So she's right. Yeah, you should go then. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah. they could have got definitely a lot more out of her. And that, like that effect, actually, with them going in the closet, I'm... It seems like a very simple effect, but it's so effective. It's just what, like a white light spinning around behind them, like in the closet, and you know, you don't know what it is that's in there. Like, what's in that light? Love yeah. that effect. It's like a strobe. I, I actually heard the face tanks or something. So the light to reflect off it. I don't know what they did, but it is very, very effective. It looks so cool. Yeah, it looked it looked really good, and especially the way it was framed as well. And she was standing there with the shadow behind her. Oh, yeah. When she started talking to the spirits about going into the lake. The silhouette of her, yeah, it looks fantastic. And it just seemed like just a very simple shot, but it's just so, so good. But her with the glasses, you know, go into the light. All are welcome. All children welcome. Serenity in the light. Yeah, yeah, it's just weird. But I noticed her right as well when I was the other night. I meant to rewind the Blu-ray to see us again. After that scene, her hair looked grayer than what it was before she actually went into that room. Am I correct? Did you notice that? I mean, I I noticed it, but I always thought it was just the lighting in the room, but it could be, or maybe that's like, uh, you know, they shot it differently, or there's the thing about the mother's hair turning gray after she goes through it, so maybe that's Yeah, because I meant to go back and check it, because then the day in the exact same thing, Francina's hair looked more gray than than before she went in there. And then they made a comment about the mother having the gray streaks in her. She's got one on each side. I I forgot to go back and check. So. No, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I, it, I noticed it, but I always thought because of the way the lighting was in the room, like that's why it's more noticeable and looks more gray because it's kind of enhancing a lot of things in that room. So I just kind of chalked it up to that. But yeah, the gray thing, that was just the thing in the 80s, I guess. Like, oh, if you had a big shock, your hair turned gray because the same thing happens in A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of reminded you because I know Nightmare on Elm Street came out a couple of years after this, but Nancy, that happens with Nancy as well in Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I, I can actually, speaking of like later horror movies, I can actually see 
uh, a lot of influence from this movie on Ghostbusters as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's definitely inspirations. Now, I don't know who did the... Did Industrial Light and Magic do the special effects on Ghostbusters? I'm not 100% sure who did the... I, th- I think they did. But even when you listen to the score of Ghostbusters as well, oh. I think it takes a lot from this too. And even just the tone of Ghostbusters, to me, takes a lot from Poltergeist. Ah, you you like that friendly kind of like uh like almost because this is like even though this is a horror movie and it scared the hell out of me, like the effects and stuff are still like very I don't know how to put it like I don't want to say friendly but like like you can approach them like it's not gory over the top disgusting like it doesn't make sense to be an R rated horror film but it very much it still has like that the the scares come from the tone almost. And like the, the the dread, whereas like in Ghostbusters you don't yes. have that. It's more comedy. But I I know exactly what you're talking about, like with the tone of Ghostbusters compared to this. Yeah, well, I remember reading about Ghostbusters that that Evan Raymond says that it was filmed. The tone of it's filmed like a horror movie. So the whole tone and feel of Ghostbusters is horror, but it's a comedy. You know, it's a it's a comedy horror. So that but alleviates it. And so I, I'm not sure if that would be the same that applies for Poltergeist. I mean, this is a, a more of a horror tone. It's very grounded. It's very real. But, and there is humor in there. But I mean, like even things like, for example, the paranormal investigators, them two guys, I think them two guys are brilliant. They um, are. But you want them to say to go in and make a steak. Does he say that steak? Yeah, I, that, I, I'm glad you brought that up too. Who goes into another person's kitchen and grabs a steak out of the fridge, of all things? <laughs> <laughs> he says to the other guy, I'm hungry. He says, uh, I'm just going to grab something to eat here. And that's this massive steak out of their fridge. Make your sandwich as well about the tone. Obviously, he's hallucinating. Or the ghosts are putting things in his head because it says they, they know what scares you. Uh, and it's, the steak's moving. You know, so uh, it's kind of funny too when you think about it. Yeah, that's a very silly effect for the movie. Like, things start coming out of the stake to scare the hell out of him. And it's weird, because we go from that fun little thing to that horrific thing where he's ripping his face off in the bathroom right in the next scene. It's very different tones from that, because that scene is like... Because that's more like, yeah, like, that's something that... The stake could be in Ghostbusters, but what happens in the bathroom, that's something out of a horror movie. I always felt like that's, like, yeah. to- that's Toby Hooper, I think, contributing, is, like, that, peeling the face away. But I, I actually heard that the... But when it went to the the censors, the MPAA, uh, Spielberg used this scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where one of the Nazis' faces is melting to justify the other guy putting his face apart to get a PG rating. Oh, <laughs> I guess that's so, right. You can't do one without doing for the other. <laughs> yeah, well, you're saying about Toby Hooper. I'm not saying they're wrong about it because nobody nobody even know. You know what I mean? And there's somebody who says it. But the thing is, is that it, it, people forget that. At that stage in Spielberg's career, he was doing some horrific stuff in his movies. And that stuff at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with the face melting and the skull, that was one of them. You know, so it's not out of the realm of Spielberg in 1982 to do something like that. And I'm just I'm just wondering, do you know that, that obviously that was a fake head, right? Yeah. But that was Spielberg's hands. Oh, really? Peeling it away? That was his hands coming That was his hands peeling the face away, yeah. Huh. I didn't know so that. He was there. Huh. I mean, I know that they always use people, somebody else. It's never actually the actor, like in like the first Friday the Thirteenth. That's like Tom Savini's assistant's hands, not uh, you know, not Pamela Voorhees' hands in that movie. But like they always have like the effects people. That's funny. That's Spielberg though. <laughs> yeah, Spielberg put it away. So it just just shows you like as well that that he was well up for putting that into the film. And the funny thing is too, like they're sitting there 
in the middle of the night and they're waiting for all these poltergeists to make an appearance. So he he's in want to cook a steak in the kitchen and the other guy's sitting on his Walkman listening to music eating crisps or something. Yeah, I love those guys. And I think that, have you ever seen the movie Insidious? Yes. I feel like they were very much inspired by these two guys in this movie. Yeah, 100%. But I was Insidious. I really like Insidious, by the way. I think it's one of the better horror movies to come out over the last, whatever it is, 10, 15 years. But I agree. when I was watching that movie, I was just like, this is a modern hit on Poltergeist. A hundred percent. It's very, very similar. Same thing. A family that's ha- has a kid that's not in half the movie. Like you got to be kidding me. It's very. It's so inspired. And then bringing those two guys in with a girl who's their boss. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then they and at the end, instead of the mother going through to the other side, it's the father goes through. Yeah. Actually shows you what it's like on the other side. Whereas this, it doesn't show you what's no. on the other side. All you see is like the ectoplasm from when she comes out. Yeah, actually, I love that, by the way, which I'm glad that it, I'm glad they didn't show it. But like, I like leaving the mystery. We talked about that with Close Encounters. Like, we don't need to see it. But Insidious did a good job of not over abusing it. But yeah, I do like that in this movie. We don't know what the other side is. In my head, yeah. I literally just picture I've always pictured just like a white plane of existence that you can't see around you. So, like, you just kind of, like, are walking towards, like, nothing, and then, like, eventually, like, a light will appear, and that's the light she has to walk towards. That's all I picture in my head, at least. I don't know if you picture anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't think I've thought about it, but the thing is about the light, I assume that the light is heaven, so, you know, when you go towards the light, you can't come back. That's ghost logic. If you go from the movie Ghost, yeah, you go towards the light, you don't come back. Is that what it is? Well, Ghost, yeah, the movie no. Ghost. <laughs> I, <laughs> not the actual. Because the little, I watched the making of, or not the making of, there's, there's a documentary, because there's no making of, there's a documentary on the Blu-ray. And it's like, it was on the 25th anniversary DVD, so it's many years old now. But they but they have like uh, Ghost Hunters on, and clairvoyance and things like that. And they basically explain that ghosts are people that don't know they're dead. And they're in between the real life and the afterlife and basically poltergeist is german for noisy ghost and Uh. they make a lot of noise or disruption to get your attention because they want attention that's all it is they just want people to acknowledge them that makes a lot of sense yeah so in the movie when she's saying like stay away from the lake in other words when that first woman comes in and she says tell her stay away from the lake she knows that if carla goes into the lake she's dead She's not going back. She's going to heaven or hell. I don't know which one it is. So I, I believe that Tangina is telling the other spirits to go towards the lake at the end, right? But Craig T. Nelson misunderstands her and thinks she's telling Carl Ann to go to the lake. No! No! You said no! So she wants all the other spirits to go to the lake because uh, Beth Jo Williams is in there and she's going to get Carl Ann, you know what I mean? Yep. So that that's my understanding of it. So going to the lake is bad for Carla because she's not dead, and, and they explain that in the night scene because because uh, Rob, Robbie they say to Robbie say they had that Carla's not dead. She's just in another dimension or whatever, and that was the whole thing. All these other spirits, they're dead people. She's not dead, so we don't want her to go to the lake. I agree. I think, and that's awesome. And I love that. That's exactly you're exactly right. That's exactly what it is. She's telling the rest of the ghosts like. 
go into the light. All are welcome. Like that's where you're safe. That's where you're yes. free. That's where you'll be okay. You're all dead. You don't realize it. It's all in the subtext. Just go into the light. You'll be all right. And while Caroline is getting rescued, and then they end up in the bathroom in the bathtub with uh, man, that's disgusting. All the ectoplasm on them. <laughs> yeah, all the ectoplasm. It kind of reminds me of the the, the goo goo from uh, Ghostbusters two. More than anything, the slime. <laughs> The slang, yeah. Yeah, the 80s just had a love for 80s goo. I just watched The Blob, Ghostbusters 2, this. I mean, it was just all over the place in the 80s. Yeah, they like that stuff. And I really like how Angelic, like, had her work looked when she was lying with Andrew Williams. She looked like a new, almost like a newborn baby. And so I don't know if that was intentional. It feels like that. Like they come, yeah, they come out of a white light, and everything. Every movie I've ever seen, whenever somebody's born, they always show it like being a, coming through a white light. So I assume it's like yeah. them being reborn, essentially. Yeah, that's that. And even the way the landed, you know, in a, she's like in a fetal position as well. So I don't know if that was intentional, but that's kind of how it grabs me when when I see them coming down, and then it's like put them in the bath and rinse it off. It's like you know, when a, when a child's born doesn't breathe for a few few seconds. You know what I mean? Yep. It, it hasn't breathed, breathed before. And that's what it kind of reminded me of. Yeah, and they're always covered in goo like that, which is like afterbirth pretty much. So it's all, yeah. you know, it, it is very similar. And I feel like that was the choice. Like, just like I kind of feel like the choice in the beginning to bury the fish in the backyard was foreshadowing, like, the ending of the movie with the graves being, with them being buried, the bodies being buried on the same land. Oh, yeah. And especially when they come in the take the yeah, and then they dig up the, the the earth, and you see makeshift coffin oh, it of the budgie. Yeah, pops open. Just being, <laughs> yeah, decimated. Yeah, I mean it's ridiculous. I it's still fascinating to me that everyone survives that night because the house it disappears. Can you imagine, <laughs> imagine being the guy, the boss? Like after seeing that, he's like probably thinking, yeah, I probably owe someone an apology. <laughs> And he's there too. Why yeah. is he there? I don't know why he's there. I guess he's there to try and just try and convince him one last time to keep his job. And he's like probably not understanding why he's quitting to begin with. Like he's telling me the house is haunted, and now it's like oh, I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, I, I know how all the neighbors are out in the street looking to see what's going on, and they they're just getting in the car and they're like, "Get the hell out of here!" And then just get out of that neighborhood. You can tell that neighborhood like Chevy Chase and vacation. Oh, I mean, everything is going off. Like, the, the water spouts are shooting off, fire shooting out of the ground. Like, it's like the apocalypse is happening. Like, that, someone's got to explain that. The ne- I want to see what happens the next day after Poltergeist because someone's got to explain a house disappearing. <laughs> well, that's the thing as well about Poltergeist 2 as well. Like, I watched Poltergeist 1 again. I think it was, um, when was it? Was, the week, was it last weekend? I can't I- remember, but I watched the game for the bar. And see, when I finish it, I want to watch the Sagamon. I really do. And I think the second one starts in that street at that house. And they go back to it a few times. And I think, I can't remember, it's been a few years since I watched the second one, but about two years, they try and explain what happened to the house, you know, where did it go. That's what I like about the second one. You know, it continues on their story, whereas the third one's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like Halloween 3 or, you know, Jaws 3, you know, go to SeaWorld. You know, if it goes, it happens in a completely different location. You know what I mean? And nobody else is back but Carl Ann. That you know, bothers me. But whereas the second one is more of a continuation. It's the same family, which is good. I always appreciate it. We got everybody back for the second one. The third one, I, I never liked it when we're, when it's a kid and it's like, we're going to send you to live with your aunt and uncle. I've never been a fan of that like whole arc. It's like, 
I'm now look at the parents a little bit differently after that. I don't like to retroactively look at people different or even films. <laughs> yeah. Although, to be honest, talk about the third movie, two brilliant actors playing the aunt and uncle. Oh, Nancy yeah. Nancy Allen and Tom Skerritt. I, I love them both. I'm a huge, obviously, huge RoboCop fan. I love Na- Blowout. love Nancy Allen and Tom Skerritt. I've always loved Tom Skerritt. I think he's a very underrated actor, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I do appreciate that uh, very much. And actually, very a little off topic, but I wanted to ask you, have you gotten that RoboDoc documentary yet about the making of RoboCop? I have it on pre-order, John. Oh, I got it, and I'm uh, two episodes into it. Is it good? Dude, it's incredible. It's First of all, you're going to need to, like a month because it's 308 minutes long. It's four, it's a four episodes. It's Thank God they split it up into four episodes because each episode's like an hour and a half. Brilliant. You know what? It's not out here until the end of December, I think. See, I thought so, it came out at the end of December. I must have misread it. Matt told me he got it, and I didn't pre-order it because I thought I had time. And he's like, no, it's out right now. So I got it on Amazon, and I got it delivered. Yeah, because I've been seeing online people getting the documentary, but they're not in the UK or Ireland or anything. And I think our reason here is now till the end of December. So I pre-ordered it right away, so it's something to look forward to. I'll just watch it after around Christmas time, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think the, the version which I ordered, Comes with a poster as well. Yeah, that version I didn't. There's a really nice collector's version. There's also a Walmart exclusive steelbook. I got the uh, cheap slipcover version. It didn't come. It literally is just a regular Blu-ray case. It's got a slipcover and then it's got one disc in it. So it's very plain. I can't believe how much minutes they got on the one disc though. <laughs> it's really you're gonna love it. They don't leave any stone unturned. Class. I do the type of documentaries I love. I just started watching another one. I've seen it before, but the Friday the Thirteenth one. It's very similar to that, just a lot higher production value. Yeah, and it's only for the first movie, isn't it? It's not for the sequels or anything. No, it's literally just the first movie, but they, they have interviews with people that were cut from the movie and why they were cut. It's like every actor that appears in the movie they pretty much got interviews with. They talk about every sound effect, every special effect, uh, everything. There is They got everybody. It's incredible. It really is one of the best. And I'm only two episodes in, one of the documentary best documentaries I've ever seen. Brilliant. You're going to love it when you get it. See, that's what we need for Batman 89. We need something like that. I don't know how I. I don't even know how you go about doing that. I guess you have to get approval from the studios and everything. The interview. It's got. It's probably a nightmare to be honest. Like to get a documentary yeah. made like that. Well, I was seeing. I they have a Facebook page, and I've been following it for a while now. And um, this has been delayed and delayed and delayed. So um, I would say it's it's not easy to to um, make a documentary like this. I would say it'd be very time consuming. And I also think that it would cost an awful lot of money as well because you're probably not making much money out of it. You know, you're probably having to factor in costs if you're doing face-to-face interviews. Um, I suppose in this day and age, you can do interviews over, you know, like this. But yeah, I would say you're not making too much money off that and it would be very time-consuming. Yeah, I feel like documentaries are a very thankless job. They're very hard to make. A lot of time goes into them. The editing process is probably a nightmare so i just could not imagine how and like you said they just don't make as much money as like a regular film would like that's why it's like released on blu-ray and you know you really depend on word of mouth for people to go see those i actually um there's a new jaws documentary um in the works at the moment it's called um man eater i think there's the making of a man eater something like that and they've been talking about that for years now and i've recently seen that they've scheduled to start filming 
very soon. And um, one of the main guys that's involved in it, like he, I've, I've known this guy for years, um, but he actually has a book on all out. And he actually, I was watching a podcast with him recently, and uh, he was approached to do this. And he was like, no, he says, I've, I've done everything I wanted to do with Jaws, and I don't know if there's anything else they're going to say about it. And then the, the guys that approached them, one of them's his friend. I think one of the other guys is the guy that done the Pennywise documentary. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he he's one of his friends, and he says to him as well. He says, "Look, showed him some stuff." He says, "Well, have you seen this?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> and he says, "It gave him an incentive to go and do another documentary on it." Oh. And he and he's right because you know, I find that too that there's I'm the same with with Jaws. It's like, what else can you say about it? I mean, what else can be said about it? What else can be discovered about it? But I do think there's other films that need to be kind of discovered, like the Terminator even. Yeah. I would love to see one about Terminator 1 and 2, John. You know, I would like to see one about, we talk about it, Batman and maybe Batman Returns, you know, just the Burton ones. It would be you know, really But the nice. difference with them is Warner Brothers owns them. Whereas, like, if you, RoboCop, I'm not sure. I think the rates have been bouncing about. I know MGM maybe had the rates the most recently, but they started out with Orion Pictures. So it may be easier to get the rates to movies like that. It's so hard with certain... Well, it's weird because Orion also did the Terminator, so, but now the Terminator rights are only in James Cameron's hands, so everything with Terminator has to run through him, and that's why I feel like we don't have a lot of making-ups with the Terminators, because James Cameron is... He's just so far into the Avatar movies, man, <laughs> that it, it's hard. Yeah. We're lucky we're getting that new Titanic scan coming out soon, and I've heard that people have seen the Aliens and the Abyss 4K scans, so... Fingers crossed that the next one's Terminator, but who the hell knows when we're even going to get those on, like, Blu-ray and yeah. 4K. I think that is the thing with Cameron. I think Cameron is always thinking forward. He's never looking back. And that that's the thing with Cameron. Mm-hmm. He, he's a very, for me, he comes across as a very busy person. He's got a lot of things on, but he's always looking forward. Yeah. You know, and for him, the thing came to go and sit, to go through and do a Terminator or a Terminator 2. I don't think he can fit it into his schedule, and I think that's the issue. Yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly what the problem is for him. So it just it's, it, it's just very frustrating for us though, because we want to go back and watch the Terminator and the yeah. like, and have like you said, I would love a making up documentary just to have Terminator one and two. We don't got to talk about the rest of them. I just want Terminator one and two. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing, but with Cameron as well is that it's more than a filmmaker now. He's probably less of a filmmaker than what he used to be. I mean, from what I heard, he was only making that, that Avatar movie so he could do more of his uh, deep sea stuff, uh, you know, is the, is that. That's his passion, is definitely deep sea diving. Yeah. He loves that. Uh, I, and the thing about Terminator as well, the original Terminator, across his my mind as well, I wonder how good the actual um, negative is. I mean, and that's a fil- a type of filmmaking that Jim Cameron just does. James Cameron just doesn't even do anymore. It's like that. You, I'm actually very curious about the filmmaking process because it's very much like guerrilla filmmaking. It's actually low budget, nothing like what he does now with big budgets and special effects. Yeah, it just makes me think that to put out a decent scan of the Terminator, I wonder would you have to restore the negatives? I feel like you probably and that in would. Itself is a long and painstaking process. I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, other movies have done it. Godfather, I know that the Jaws Blu-ray Day done it, but it was Universal done it, and then, it, you know, it was funded by Universal. Um, I think Paramount funded The Godfather. So it's a case of, it could be a case of restoring it first before, but if it was somebody else doing that within the studio, 
and then it would be only a matter of Cameron coming in then and overseeing the 4K transfer or whatever, whatever way to do that. Yeah, I feel like you could, that they would just hire somebody. Whoever has the rights, I feel like you just hire whatever whatever boutique label you want to hire to do the restoration of the camera negative. And then, like you said, just have James Cameron, like, he doesn't have to even be there just to prove it. Like, you know, if because if he oversaw the Terminator 2 scan, then what the hell happened? So, you know, I don't understand. Yeah. But, like, Terminator is definitely an, an older film, one that was done by Orion. So I'm sure that that source material... That camera negative is probably in a lot rougher shape than T2 was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 40 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just sitting on a con somewhere. It could be God knows what condition. You know, it's funny you should say that. I was watching some reviews spell about the Exorcist 4A, and I actually seen some mixed reviews. I've seen some people who weren't happy with 4K, or 4K, 4K and the, there's a few people that actually say that the original presentation hasn't been seen for over 20, 30 years. That actually, when I'm freaking, I actually tweaked it. Big camera, putting a different tent on the film. Yeah, um, I've read those actual, what those reports were. And there are scenes in the new scan that look a little bit rough. But people really have to understand, it's a 50-year-old movie. <laughs> it's it's really hard to make that movie look pristine. I still think they did a great job. There's moments. It really, for the most part, it looks like what you'd expect a Warner Brothers 4K to look like. But then it has its moments where it looks a little bit... Just rough, and, and probably they that was just the best they could do. I always chalk that up when I'm watching a 4K, and it looks pristine for the most part. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's anything to do with the restoration process. I just always think it's the best they could do with what they got. So I think we got everything, right? Yeah, I think so as well. I think yeah. so. I, I don't know too much about Polar Guys, you see, you know what I mean? And just more than just watching the movie and appreciating it. Yeah, I don't know too much about like actual poltergeist myself, so I don't know if they're real or anything like that. <laughs> I hope not, you know, but you never know. Honestly, this is more believable than most things in horror movies, and I think that's kind of what lends to it being as scary as like, you know, it's something you don't see. Those are all I always find that to always be the yeah. scariest stuff is when it's something you don't see. Like I'm not scared of slashes at all. I always feel like, ah, worst case scenario, I'll get away. Look how slow Jason is. <laughs> Listen, see, things like Freddy, Jason, even um, Michael Myers, you know, well, you can handle those type of boogeymen because there's scarier things in real life yeah. going on. Exactly. Um, yeah, but as for ghosts and spirits, listen, I'm a very open-minded person. I don't rule it out. I wouldn't say I don't believe in them. So, you know, but, but I, I do think when I was watching the documentary on the actual Blu-ray, that some of the people on that were a wee bit out there, like, you know. There's, there's believing, and then there's kind of like, I think you're talking nonsense. Yeah, there's always a fine line that a lot of people do jump across, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just like you. I'm an open-minded person. If it, if it shows its face, I'm there, but I'm not going to be, uh, you know, out there seeking it and just believing that it's around me at all times, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and then of course there's always party and it hopes. Yes, always. You know, yeah. It hopes because it's like if, if something presents itself, then it gives you a bit of evidence, doesn't it? That there's something more. I think we when all you want die, that. You know what I mean? It's not over. You know, it's not just darkness. There's something. There's an afterlife. You know. Yeah, we all hope because, like, who doesn't want there to be something more after we're gone? You know. But you know, we'll, exactly. We'll all find out. That's for sure. Yeah, we're all going to find out anyway, yeah. Yeah. True. But, uh, that, that, that's a guarantee, is that what they say about me? 
Yeah. There's... Do you think that, was it uh, death and taxes? Oh, yeah. Can't escape them both, that's for sure. Doesn't matter how rich of a celebrity you are. If you're not paying your taxes, they'll throw you away for that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's the one, that's the line in the sand. It's like, you can murder somebody, but you know what? At the end of the day, you better be paying your taxes. <laughs> so... Yeah, but I think that's a good way place to close out the Let's Talk podcast. Me and David will be with you guys next time. I don't know what movie we'll do next. We'll talk about that off the air. But make sure you guys like, share, and subscribe, and get out in those streets and tell your friends about us. We'll be seeing you around.